there's a danger that comes when you first become a Christian. And, uh, and a lot of you have failed to escape this danger. You, you, you repent, you come to Christ, and, uh, and you, um, you're hungry for truth, but you don't know where to get it, really. I mean, you know the Bible's good, but when you read the Bible, it's a pretty big book and kind of confusing. You don't have a background, a context to understand anything. And so you're kind of just, you know, it's all just rather new to you. So you do things like listen to TV evangelists, which is not a good idea. Or maybe you go to some liberal church that doesn't even believe in the authority of the scriptures. Or you begin talking to somebody who says they're a Christian and they seem to know a lot, but they don't even know Christ. You kind of skip around in the Bible because you don't know how to study the Bible. And you kind of just pick and choose, you know, whatever comes along. You're starting to form this kind of patchwork theology in your mind. And it can be pretty bad. Or maybe you start reading a certain book and somebody encourage you to read a book, not the book, but some other uninspired book where a guy kind of lays out a system. And it's the first one you've ever kind of seen, kind of put together in a whole system. You think about that sounds good. And so you read more and more and more. And pretty soon you're very convinced about that system. Now, you've never studied the scriptures yourself. You've never looked up all those texts yourself and their context and synthesized them and come up with your own view. You've just kind of adopted somebody else's view. And so what happens is, is this is all good and fine, you know, as long as what you've latched onto is true. But if it's not true, only partially true, it's very hard to undo what has been done. You, you grow up in a church from an early age being taught something. Your parents believe it. Everybody around you in church believes it. It's what you're used to. It's what you're comfortable with. And you know what? The thought never enters your mind that, you know what? Maybe some of this is wrong. And maybe you just believe it, not because you've studied it out in the scriptures, but because that's what you were raised to believe. And sometimes you might, be working your way through the scriptures and and all of a sudden you come to this verse that seems like you know what this just doesn't seem to fit what i believe and the thought never enters your mind that maybe your system's wrong and so you assume your what you believe is right and so instead of just letting the scripture change your system you change the scripture to fit your system so that it aligns itself with what you want to believe rather than it aligning you to what God wants you to believe. And so to undo what has been done in our minds sometimes is very difficult to go against creeds and heritage and friends and respected theological heroes. C.H. Spurgeon in a sermon entitled The Sixth Beatitude said, quote, Formalism will never see God for formalism always looks to the shell and never gets to the kernel. Formalism licks the bone, but never gets to the marrow. It heaps to itself ceremonies, mostly of its own invention. And when it has attended to these, it flatters itself that it is well, though the heart itself still lusts after sin. The widow's house is being devoured even at the very time when the Pharisee is making a long prayer in the synagogue or at the street corner. Such a man cannot see God. 
There is a kind of reading of scriptures which will never lead a man to see God. He opens the Bible not to see what is there, but to see what he can find to back up his own views and opinions. If the text he wants is not there, he will twist others around until he somehow or other gets them on his side. But he will only believe as much as agrees with his own preconceived notions. He would like to mold the Bible like a cake of wax to any shape he pleases. So, of course, he cannot see the truth and he does not want to see it. End quote. It was a problem in Spurgeon's day. It's a problem in our day, and it was a problem in Jesus's day as well. And we're going to see it in the text before us this morning. The Jews have certain beliefs. They have certain preconceived notions about the Messiah. It's kind of like this. The Messiah is going to be from the line of David, the tribe of Judah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. We know that. We know he's going to be a ruler. He's going to conquer all of Israel's enemies, and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem forever and ever. And so in their mind, he is a, a man who is both a political and military leader. And so that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the Messiah to come back, raise an army, defeat Rome, and then establish his rule on the earth. And so they hold these truths with white knuckles. And if they were to go against this, they would be going against their heritage. They would be going against what they taught the people. They would be going against their friends. They would be going against their whole heritage. It would just be a catastrophe. Because who wants to go toe-to-toe with the Sanhedrin? Who wants to appear to be, in the eyes of others, a a false teacher or a teacher of dangerous doctrines? Who wants to be a, a source of contention and despised and rejected? Jesus, that's who. Do you know what Matthew 22, verse 44, and Mark 12, 36, and Acts 2, 34 through 35, and 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and Hebrews 1, 13, and Hebrews 10, 13, all have in common? They all quote the same verse from the same psalm. Psalm 110, the most often quoted verse from the Psalms in the New Testament. And it also appears in our text this morning. Before we look at our text, I want you to look at Psalm 110. And believe me, we're going to be coming back here. So you might want to stick something there just to make sure that you can flip back and forth because we're going to come back here. I'm going to take Tim's little order of service and put it here. Okay. All right. So I've got mine. You put yours there because we're going back there frequently. Psalm 110 reads, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter in Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer Freely in the day of your power and holy array from the room of the dawn, from the youth you are as a dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will, he will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Jews believed that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. That is a psalm that spoke of the Messiah. In the psalm, the Lord God speaks to the Messiah, telling him, he's going to conquer. You're going to conquer your enemies. I'm going to put them under your feet. You're going to have devoted followers. You're going to be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which is you are going to be both priest and king. And the Jews all understood this. The Jews all believed this. Now, remember, it is the last week of Jesus' life. It's Tuesday, a couple more days. Jesus will be tried, and Friday he will be crucified and die. And at this point, Jesus is really the target of the anger and hostility of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Jewish rulers. Why? Because he has come up on the Temple Mount and he has preached that he's the Messiah. He has healed the sick. He's let people declare that he is the son of David, the Messiah and triumphal entry. Uh, They know all of this and it angers them. He's driven away the money changers and the sacrifice sellers dipping into their pockets and they just don't like it. Before our text this morning, Jesus now goes on the offensive. He's kind of let them attack him and now he decides to kind of swing a theological counterpunch at them. And he asks them a question designed to force them to a particular conclusion that will assault their preconceived notions about the Messiah. Jesus is doing this for a reason. He's provoking them to hostility. Jesus is in control of the situation. Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows it's the Father's will. And so he's kind of pushing their buttons. Not too hard, so they attack him right then. But so that they get so angry and hostile that by the end of the week, they will betray him over to Rome. And so look at Luke chapter 20. And follow along as I read verses 41 through 44. And he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now, I don't know if you've taken logic um, I have my undergrad degrees in electronics technology, and so we had to take logic classes just so we could read schematics and technical stuff. And uh, so you learn in in logic that you have uh, really a uh, uh, in a simple argument, a couple premises, and then a conclusion. And you learn that if your premises are are true, then the conclusion, which is derived from those premises, must also be true. Now, when you go through the the Gospels, Jesus uses brilliant argumentation, flawless argumentation. I mean, it is pretty stunning. He he is able to lay out arguments that are so forceful they cannot be refuted. And so is the case in our text this morning. Jesus is going to lead them to two premises and one unavoidable conclusion that David's son is the Messiah, 
that Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah is God. First, the Christ is David's son. Look at verse 41. Jesus goes on the offensive and he says to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Now, at this time, they don't know that Jesus is building an argument. They just think, oh, the poor sap doesn't even understand this one. And their minds, because the Pharisees, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. We know that from the parallel account in Matthew. Jesus has has focused on the Pharisees because they are the fanatic Bible studiers and memorizers. So he knows that they're going to know this. So he focuses on the hardcore Bible studiers and says, so, um, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? And instantly their minds begin to crunch and crunch and go through the scriptures, bringing up scriptures of all sorts. First Chronicles chapter 17 verses 7 through 14 gives the words of what is called the Davidic covenant. God speaks to Nathan the prophet and says, now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from pasture, from following sheep to be a leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are on earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them away as formerly, even from the day that I command judges to be rule over my people Israel and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. And then comes the words of the Davidic covenant. Here are the, here's like the, the covenant condensed. When your days, this is what Nathan is supposed to tell David from God. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that is when you die, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be one of your sons, that is somebody in your line, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house, and I will establish his throne forever i will be his father and he shall be my son and i will not take my loving kindness away from him as i took it from him who was before you speaking of saul but i will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever so he's going to be god's son the very son of god he's going to rule on david in david's line forever and ever And this is the Davidic covenant. And so as soon as they say, you know, how do they say the Christ is David's son? Man, their minds are here. Or maybe they're in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. And And Isaiah 11 goes on to explain the righteous rule of the Messiah. Jesse, of course, is David's father. So he comes from the line of Jesse, David, then the Messiah. Or maybe they're thinking of Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And so they know all these texts. There's a lot of them. And Matthew 22, verse 42 tells us the Pharisees instantly get the answer and they just blurt it out. 
He's the son of David. The Messiah is the son of David. Now, Jesus has just got them to grant the first premise of his argument, but they don't realize this yet. Have you ever uh, seen the little tiny baseball players, the little leaguers play, and they have the little stand, you know, where you put the baseball on it, tee ball? Okay. Uh, he just got them to put the ball on the tee. It's very easy to hit because it's still, and he just got them to grant him the first premise, and they all believe it. And Jesus didn't ask the question because he was needing information. Jesus wasn't clueless saying, yeah, I don't know. Could you tell me? No, he's bringing them to the place where they say, okay, we're going to give you your first premise. And then having given them the first premise, which they all believe is true, that the Messiah, the Christ, does come from the line of David or is a son or descendant of David, he then goes after the second that David himself affirms that his son is the Christ. Look at verse 42. Jesus quotes Psalm 110. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and just stop there. He says, this is emphatic. David himself says in the book of Psalms. Now, Jesus at this point, this is so understood by the Jews. Jesus doesn't even ask them. Everybody knows this. I mean, they've got the Psalms memorized. He says in the book of Psalms and uh, the Matthew 22 account and, and Mark 12 account, they, they say that Jesus said David spoke in the spirit, in the spirit. This is critical. Why? Because the Jews believed the scriptures were the inspired word of God. That is that when David wrote out the Psalms, that he wrote the very words of God. So whatever they grant Jesus from the scriptures, Jesus knows they're going to have to stick to it because they can't escape because it's the word of God. So he's got them to get the first premise right. And now he just asserts the second premise that David wrote in the spirit. David affirms that he wrote in the spirit in texts like 2 Samuel 23 verses 2 and 3, where he says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. And then he says what God told him. Peter describes the process of inspiration in second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21, where he says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own private interpretation. He says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's what happens. So that when inspiration occurs, the Holy Spirit then moves a human author using their writing style, using their background, using their experience. And the human author writes down what they want to say. But at the same time, because they're superintended by the Holy Spirit, they write down the exact and perfect and inerrant word of God. So that the result is, you could say, well, Paul wrote that. God wrote that. The Holy Spirit wrote that. Paul and God wrote that. When Paul says something, you can say God says it. And the same is true of David. So Jesus brings them to the conclusion that in the Psalms that David wrote, inspired, he says that the Messiah is his son. And they all know that. They all know that. The Bible is a unique 
book. We see references to the Jews' understanding of this, like in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, where Peter reveals that the Jews understood this. He says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Notice this. The Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Or later in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, Peter says, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise a futile thing? And he quotes Psalm 2, which Tim read earlier. So it would be correct to say that David wrote Psalm 110, the Holy Spirit wrote Psalm 110, that David and the Holy Spirit wrote Psalm 110, or you could just say it's the word of God. It all works. It all works. Now look at the middle of verse 42 again, where we see that David said in the spirit, that is this, the utterance of God through David, the Lord said to my Lord. Now you say, okay, which Lord is which and who, what Lord is talking to what other Lord? Well, there's a couple different words for Lord in the Hebrew. The problem is the Greek only uses one word. So this is where we got to go back to Psalm 110. So turn to Psalm 110. And I want to just give you a little lesson that's probably more than you need, but it's kind of fun and helpful. If you look at Psalm 110, and uh, you will see that in verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord... And you see that the first Lord is in all caps and the second Lord isn't. There's a reason for that. When Moses went up in the mountain and he saw the burning bush and the Lord spoke to him through the burning bush, God told him he was going to go, he was going to deliver the people, he was going to go tell Pharaoh to let you know my people go, and he was going to send Moses to Egypt to deliver the people, to bring them out of Egypt. Moses then is thinking to himself, okay, okay, so what do I do? I go up to Pharaoh and say, hey, I talked to this burning bush. And um, see how ridiculous that is? So then he says to himself, well, maybe uh, I go to Pharaoh saying, hey, you need to let the Israelites go. And he said, well, who are you? He says, well, I'm nobody, but my God has sent me. Well, who's he? Well, he's the God of my fathers. Well, who's that? And then I tell him, what? And when I go to the people and say, hey, we're going to be leaving Egypt. And they say, well, who said? Well, God. What God? They're living in a, a society full of pagan gods. And he's going to say, I'm going to tell them what? And so he's asking God for kind of a, could you give me your like formal name? So I don't have to say burning bush and, you know, kind of sound embarrassing to do that. And so in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That is the great I am, is the memorial name of God. Yahweh, Yodeh in the Hebrew, the ineffable tetragrammaton. Isn't that cool? It just sounds cool. Why do they call it that? Why do they call it? Ineffable means unutterable tetragrammaton, the four letter name. Why do they call it that? Well, they call it that for this reason. Because when they constructed the name of Yahweh, the Jews so revered the name of God, they didn't want anybody mispronouncing it. So they took it and they wrote it in letters so that people couldn't pronounce it. 
I mean, we, we try and say Yahweh or Jehovah, but really it's an unutterable four letter name. But it means the one who exists, the existing one, the one who has always been. And so this name was of extreme importance. And the Jews, of course, didn't want the name of God dishonored. And so they wrote it in this form so that it would be an unutterable four letter name. It was the memorial name of God. Well, this is good and fine, but the, it, it poses some problems. I mean, what if you're reading the Bible to somebody and you come to the unutterable name? What do you say? And so they decided, well, what we're going to tell people to say is Adonai, which is means Lord, Master, Ruler. It's kind of a generic term of anybody who's in authority over somebody else. It could be God or human rulers. So we're just going to kind of have a, um, we'll say Adonai, or sometimes they say the name. But see, that poses problems too, because let's say you're translating the Bible into English. And now you've got the word, the Lord God, Yahweh, the memorial name. And then in the same text, you have the word Adonai. Now what do you do? Or if the people are reading it and you translate Adonai, Lord, and Yahweh, Lord, then how do they know which one's which? That's why if you look at most of your Bibles, you'll see that Lord is in all caps. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that means the word underneath that is the ineffable tetragrammaton. And now you know. Pretty basic, huh? So when we look at the verse, notice what it says. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, says to my Lord, and then that's the word Adonai. Adonai. That's what he says there. David records the word of the Lord God speaking to Adonai. Now, The Jews, again, are clueless about what's happening. They don't see Jesus as building an argument against them, but they're going, yeah, 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 we know that. We've memorized that psalm. And so they have granted the premise that, because Jesus has just stated it, that God says to the Messiah, Adonai, that's how they understood it. God said to the Messiah, you know, you're going to rule, your enemies are going to be a foot, 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 footstool for your feet, you're going to have dominance, preeminence, and they're all like, yeah. And when, and when they grant that in their mind, that's when Jesus has the bat now. He's got the second premise. They still don't know what's going on. They still aren't quite sure what's going on. It's a psalm of David. They know that. What's interesting, if you look at it, it says at the beginning, the psalm of David. Do you see those little titles there right before the psalm? Those are extremely ancient. They're most likely inspired. But of course, liberal theologians come along and go, we aren't quite sure who wrote that. It says right there. Yes, but we aren't sure if that's right. Well, that's your problem. It's a psalm of David. That's what the Jews all believed. It's what the ancient label had on it. So in the psalm, as we just kind of mentioned briefly, the Messiah just has undisputed dominion. All the enemies are conquered. He is established. He even sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, he says, sit at my right hand. Now, it's pretty amazing. This Adonai person gets to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's some serious elevation. 
you know, if you've come here for the family fellowship service, and I'm sure you will tonight, every one of you is going to be here and we're glad. But when you come, when we do the right hand of fellowship, what's neat about it is we talk about how we extend the right hand and the right hand was the most powerful hand. Well, to sit at somebody's right hand was to sit in the best, highest, most authoritative place. It's like sitting, be my equal is really what it's saying. And here the, in the Psalm, Luke twenty forty two says that he would sit at my right hand. Of course, he's quoting Psalm 110. The Messiah will be elevated to the very throne of God. And, and he will be elevated until God makes an, his enemies a footstool for his feet. Yahweh will put all things under the feet of Adonai, the Messiah. The Messiah will be ruler over all. Now, Psalm 2 Tim read it earlier. I'm just going to read verses 6 through 12. Listen to it again. Maybe you'll hear it in a different light. But as for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, Tegei, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and it will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's this son of the line of David, the Messiah. And if you don't worship him, he takes you out. There's a little hint there. Let's see, who are we supposed to worship? God. Okay, that'll come into play in just a minute. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, it says, Right after the second coming, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. The Old Testament is full of texts about the absolute dominion and rule of the Messiah over all the earth. Crystal clear. So now Jesus has the ball in the stand, the bat in his hand, and it's time to go after him. Jesus now leads them to the unavoidable conclusion that the two premises they agree with drive to. How is it that David calls his son Lord? Jesus is very subtle because he doesn't want to provoke them too viciously. He wants them to arrive at the conclusion themselves. He doesn't want to just tell them. So he kind of leads them to the place where they answer. The, they, they state the conclusion in their own minds. The unavoidable conclusion. The irrefutable conclusion. The conclusion of the inspired word of God that they so revere. Look at verse 44. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he his son? Now, this was frightening to them. It was so frightening to them. The question, Matthew 22, verse 46 says that no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. He's speaking to the Pharisees. All the Jewish leaders are listening and his disciples and the huge crowd on the temple mount. Jesus knocks the ball out of the park and you can see is the beginning of his swing when he says, therefore, when you ever have that therefore word, that means the conclusions coming down. 
Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he his son? And if you look, you will see that in the psalm, David refers to the Messiah as my Lord. Now, how can this be? How can this be? To a Jew, this was inconceivable because in their mind, listen, first of all, everybody knows a father is greater than his son. The son never is greater than the father. The father is always greater than the son. Not only that, David isn't just an ordinary father. He's the greatest king that Israel has ever had. There is no greater king than David. So the question I have for you, since you've granted the first two premises, is how in the world can David's son be his Lord, Master, Ruler, and King? I mean, who is greater than the greatest king on earth? Um, um, God? And they feel the bat strike their head. They're just like, they're, they're, they're dumbfounded. And then they're thinking, I guess it does say that he will sit at God's right hand. I guess Psalm 2 does say we're supposed to worship him. Ah! This is like a blow at their theological glass house. No! They don't want that. They do not want to go there. And all the people are are looking at the Pharisees, the experts in the scriptures, and they're just, we better not say anything. The Jewish leaders knew about John the Baptist and all the details, the miracles surrounding his conception and birth. They knew that he was in the wilderness, declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. They knew the scripture said that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah, a voice crying out in the wilderness, and John the Baptist was a voice crying out in the wilderness. They knew what the shepherds saw. They knew what the Magi saw. The Magi came to Herod, and Herod then went to the Jewish leaders and said, where is the Messiah to be born? They quoted Micah 5.2 to him. Not only that, they talked to Jesus as he grew up in the temple. Remember the one occasion where they couldn't find Jesus and they found him? He had spent three days. Well, that was just because he had just turned 12 and now he could, he could go and ask questions and answer questions and be a son of the covenant. And you know that during all the feasts and probably whenever his parents would let him, he would come and he would dialogue with the rabbis, with some of the same people who were standing on the temple mount. Not only that, they've been hounding Jesus for three years. They heard him teach, heard him preach, heard him say things that drove to the same conclusion that he was God. Do you remember when he healed the paralytic? The guy gets lowered down. He says, your sins are forgiven. They go, only God can forgive sins. Another perfect argument. So what's easier to say? Okay, one, you've granted the first premise. Only God can forgive sins. Two, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your pallet and walk. They're thinking, well, only God can do both. And we can't verify forgiving of sins, but we could verify you healing the guy. So he says, so you know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. Take up your pallet and walk. Conclusion, I'm God. 
They were there. It's why Nicodemus said in John 3, when he came to Jesus at night, Rabbi, we, speaking of the Pharisees, he's a leader of the Jews and a Pharisee, we know that you are from God. I mean, he did all the miracles that the Messiah was supposed to do. Not only that, the whole country was calling him the son of David, a synonym for the Messiah. Even blind Bartimaeus called him that, and he couldn't even see. Son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, it was the talk of the country. And just the day before, they all cried out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the land. Blessed be the king of the son of David. And they're all crying that out. And that very day, Jesus is on the temple mount telling people he's the Messiah. This is like no mystery. But what their theology did not have in place is that Jesus, the Messiah, was God. Not because it wasn't in the Old Testament and wasn't hinted to like in Psalm 2 and wasn't directly stated. I mean, isn't that what Isaiah 9, 6 says? Unto us a child be born, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called what? Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And it goes on to speak of his reign or, or Micah 5.2. And they knew that, that Psalm, they, they said it, or that text, it was a messianic text. They quoted it to Herod when they said, where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem of Ephrata. And then they said, what? They said, you, even though you're too little to be named among the clans of Judah, Yet one of you is going to go forth from me whose goings forth are from long ago, even from the days of eternity. That is, when the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, he will have already existed from the days of eternity. There's only one person that fits that category. God. Not only that, but previously in in, in Jesus' ministry... The Jews knew exactly this because what happened was, it's like uh, in John chapter 5, Jesus is, is uh, heals on the Sabbath. The Jews have this problem. What are you doing healing on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus says basically, you know, um, my father works in the Sabbath and I work in the Sabbath. And John 5.18 says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In John chapter 10, you know, where he talks about my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand, and no one shall snatch them out of my father's hand, for my father is greater than all, and I and the father are one. That's amazing. You talk to Jehovah Witnesses. Well, that's just a one in purpose. No, it's one in essence. Well, no, I don't think so. Yes, we know so. How do we know so? Because the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And, and Jesus says, so why do you pick up stones to stone me? And this is what they say. John 10, 33. The Jews answered him for a good work. We do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Those leaders are standing in front of Jesus right now on the temple mount. The same ones. They've got their scriptures. They've got Jesus' works. They've got Jesus' declarations that he's God. 
And Jesus drives them to the conclusion where they're just dumbfounded. It's like in Micah 3.1 where it says, Behold, going, uh, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. The Lord is speaking. My messenger, John the Baptist, is going to clear the way before me. And it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And now they're sitting there looking. Is that God in front of us? No, 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 no. We've been telling this guy he's of Satan. He does miracles by Satan. We've been persecuting him. We've been trying to attack him. We're plotting to kill him. It couldn't be God. It couldn't be God. It couldn't be the Messiah. The pulpit commentary commenting on our text says, quote, this is one of the most remarkable sayings of our Lord. In it, he distinctly claims for himself divinity, participation in omnipotence. Unmistakably, lately, under the thinnest veil of a parable, Jesus had told the people that he was the Messiah. For instance, his words in the parable of the wicked husbandman and in the parable of the pounds. In his late acts in the temple, driving out the sellers and buyers, allowing the children of the temple to welcome him with messianic salutation, receiving as a Messiah the welcome of the Passover pilgrims and others on Palm Sunday as he entered in Jerusalem, end quote. Man, they know it. They have had so much stuff. They've been told so many times. And it just makes you wonder, so then why don't they just fall on their faces, repent and say, forgive us, Lord. Because they have preconceived wrong theology and their pride won't let them go against it. They will not let the scriptures alter their beliefs. John chapter 12 verse 37 through 43 says, But though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed or reported to whom of the arm of the Lord been revealed? He quotes the beginning uh, of the messianic and the end of 52 and 53 of Isaiah. For this reason, they could not believe for Isaiah said again, he has, God has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many Even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Some of them even believed they were like Nicodemus, but they wouldn't say anything because they were so afraid of the social ramifications of saying, I think Jesus is the Messiah. They just kept quiet pride and the fear of men and the love of the approval of men kept them from Speaking the truth. And we have learned from our text that Jesus is the son of David, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the son of God. And we need to learn the great danger of being religious, but not saved. Of having strong convictions that are wrong. Of being unwilling to let the word of God change our beliefs of hardening our heart to the truth, you know, of thinking, well, listen, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know? Well, I grew up in a Christian home. That doesn't make you a Christian. Yeah, but I professed Christ when I was four. That doesn't make you a Christian. 
yeah. But when I was a junior high, I went to camp and I felt bad and I prayed and asked Jesus in my heart. Is that, is that what it says? Ask Jesus in your heart? Oh, I'm a Christian. I've gone to Sunday school. I've served. I've done all these things. Yeah, but what did Jesus do for you? Don't tell me what you did for him. I want to know what he did for you. Do you love the Lord? Do you love his word? Do you love his people? Do you serve? Do you give? Do you do those things that Christians do? Or when you read those texts, if you read those texts, but when you hear those texts, at least, and those texts kind of assault you and they kind of confront your life because you realize I am not living like a Christian, then you kind of disregard them and run them through your own Play-Doh machine so they come out saying, well, you're a Christian even though you don't follow Christ. You're a Christian even though you don't love God's word and love God's people and use your spiritual gifts to serve other people. I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. That's exactly what they're doing here. Jesus keeps confronting them and confronting them. And Isaiah says that there is a point when God will take the hearts of those who keep hardening their heart and he will harden it so they can't get saved. And that I think is the great lesson of the text here. Jesus drives them to the breaking point that he is the Messiah and that he is God. And this just terrifies them. And we know that they got it. You say, well, how do we know? Because there's another text that tells us so. At this point, they're just numb and dumb. They're not saying anything. But in Matthew 26... Verses 63 to 65, Jesus at his trial, we read, And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are Christ, the Son of God. They got it, see? They got it. They understood Jesus was saying that he's not just the Son of Man, but he's the Son of God. And so they asked him the question directly because that's the conclusion Jesus drove them to in our text. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power. Like Psalm 110.1 says, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have to witness? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. That is, Jesus was claiming to be God. And though the Pharisees didn't answer Jesus in our text, we know that Peter did as he begins to preach in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36, Peter is preaching at Pentecost and he says, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Everybody knew the Christ was going to be a ruler, a Lord with a little L. But he says he's the Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And so David's son is the Messiah. The Messiah is David's Lord. 
Therefore, the Messiah must be God. As Jesus drives home that perfect little syllogism so that they can't escape and their blood will not be on his head in the day of judgment. And if you're sitting out there and you don't know Christ, make sure that you don't delay. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood. He became that perfect sacrifice. He's done everything for you because he knows you can't do it yourself. He bore in his body the sins of the world. He suffered the death that you should have died. And all he says is, listen, turn from your sins and believe in me. Trust in me. I am the Lord. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. Trust in me. And I will save you. And I will change you. If you haven't done that, do it now. Because he is returning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for how clear it is. We thank you for being able to glimpse Jesus' brilliant arguments. They are so amazing. They are so clear and concise and irrefutable. If there is somebody here, Lord, who has never come to grips with the fact that Jesus is the Lord, the God, the Savior and Redeemer, of all who call upon him in faith, may they call upon him now. May they confess their sins, turn from their sins, and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. For the rest of us, may we learn that valuable lesson from the behavior of the Pharisees. And that is not to harden our heart against the truth, to be willing to adjust ourselves around the scriptures and not commit the error of twisting the scriptures to conform to our thoughts. And Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.